Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and uh, I want to, um, I want to, uh, let's start at verse number 1. We'll read down through here a few verses of Scripture. Uh, who, as, who is as the wise man, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment. And that in regard of the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight and, and not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whosoever keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Amen. Uh, I want to talk to you today about uh, the word of a king. The word of a king. Amen. Father, I love you. Thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people. And I ask you that you would help me today, God, with clarity of mind and thought. I pray that you would let revelation and spiritual understanding come into this room. I ask for your divine help. I take authority in this service in the name of Jesus. And I ask you to confirm your word with signs following. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Turn to somebody next to you, shake their hand and say, who's king? I, uh, that verse just came this morning. So I got to looking at it, wondering what in the world. I've used that verse many times. Where the word of a king is, there is power. I then begin to connect the context of it. Verses previous and after. What really is going on here? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, but there are some, there's an insight to it. And uh, basically, basically, if you got a king, he can pretty well do what he wants. Amen. And uh, it's hard for us, and I said this in the seminar this past week, it's kind of hard for us because we have a church concept we understand the church, but I don't know that we understand the kingdom as well. And I think that uh, God is wanting and desirous to give us revelation of the kingdom. And it's especially hard for us in America to understand the term kingdom. Because we are a republic and we say that we're ruled by a democracy and Everybody has their own rights, and everybody can say what they want to, and you can protest, and you can uh, get out in the streets and scream and holler at the government, shake your fist in the face of a government, and speak whatever you want to speak about the government. Welcome to America. Amen. And, uh, but that don't work too well in a kingdom that has a king. That kind of talk can pretty well get you put to death. And uh, it's kind of hard. Uh, kings, they have counsel. They have counsel. They have staff, perhaps. But pretty well, whatever they determine, whatever they decide, is the rule of it. 
And so <clears throat> that's, that's the way that God's kingdom operates. You know, God doesn't wake up every day and then come to you and say, what do you think about me doing this today? You think it'd be all right if I did this? What's your opinion about this? What do you think about my latest ruling and my latest command? Do you agree with that or do you disagree? Well, you know as well as I do, that's not how God operates. Well, for most of us, that's not how God operates. We have a few that think that's how God operates, but he doesn't operate that way. And so in these verses, it lends toward the fact that uh, it's dealing with rebellion. And it's dealing with the fact of uh, verses 3 and 5 would deal mainly with that. And uh, it's dealing with the fact of is that uh, if you rebel, you're not wise. And if you rebel, you have become the enemy of the king. You know, I, I, I want to pause here and just say this, that some people treat rebellion as just um, something light. Just uh, not understanding the true consequences of rebellion. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And I've said that rebellion becomes the open door to demonic activity in my life. If I continually rebel against God and indulge in a work of the flesh, that I'm going to open the door to something much stronger than I am to be able to work. That's all the way back to Genesis about the lion crouched at the door. So it's very important for us to understand that, uh, you know, this rebellion deal is, it's a pretty big deal with God because he's the king We're going to get that established here real quick. He's the king. And he doesn't tolerate rebellion too much. Amen. So uh, here the wise man's telling people, be careful. Don't go to those who are in rebellion. Because if you do, then that makes you an enemy to the king. Now, I understand that we're looking at it from a physical sense, but let me give you a little better understanding of what I'm talking about. Now, before I get into this, I, I want you to know that I'm not calling anybody here Satan, but yet I am. <laughs> uh, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Simon Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And, uh, you know, it's a great revelation. And I mean, blessed are thou, Simon. And Brother Carson, six verses later, guess what Jesus calls Simon. Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, that's a, that's a fast collapse, amen. I mean, how long does it take to go through six verses, just a few seconds? And the reason why that this term is used, Satan, is because Satan, the term, is an enemy. You've become my enemy. Well, how did Simon Peter, the son of Jonah, the blessed one, become the enemy of God? Because he spoke against the will of God. Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona. And then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And Simon Peter, this is where he becomes the enemy. He says, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. You're not going to die. Bless God. We got swords and we'll fight for you. And we're going to prove that you're not going to die like that because that does not fit in our concept or ideology of how the kingdom is supposed to come and how the Messiah is supposed to come. The king is supposed to come, raise an army, drive Rome back into the sea and liberate Israel and put us back into preeminence. But the fact is, is that was their concept of the kingdom. That was their ideal of the kingdom. But God's ideal was totally different. It, we, we have a hard time sometimes understanding uh, how the king works. Now, just, just stay with me here a second. We, we have a hard time understanding that because the king can speak something and we interpret it to mean something completely different than what he actually said. 
You know, I have no doubt that when uh, John the Baptist is on the banks of Jordan and that, you know, big booming voice of his, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And I mean, he's proclaiming boldness and I must decrease and he must increase. But now John's in prison and things aren't going the way he thought they ought to go. So he sends a messenger to Jesus and says, are you he or do we look for another? Now, wait a minute, John, on the banks of Jordan, you were pretty sure this is the one, but now you got some questions about it and you're not quite sure because it's not going the way that you thought it ought to go. And so it's, uh, you know, Jesus sends back word. You go tell John that I said, the lame walk, the dumb talk, the blind see. And let me add a little something there. And blessed is he that is not offended in me. One of the most unique translations of that I found several years ago was, you go tell John to let me run my business the way that I want to run it. <laughs> and our dilemma is, and I know where I'm headed, our dilemma is, is that we think we know sometimes what the will of God is. We have our ideal about how the will of God ought to unfold and manifest. And then when it doesn't, and God's not operating the way that we think he ought to operate. I mean, I went through a series of some physical things, and I just knew it was the will of God to heal me. God's going to heal me. I mean, I've seen people healed all over the world. I know God's going to heal me. And then, you know, it didn't happen that way. And then God had to teach me a little lesson. Sometimes I choose other means to heal you. And, you know, you may disagree with this. There's divine healing, and then there's healing. And so the fact is, is it gave me a fresh appreciation for the medical field and doctors and nurses that God's given gifts to, to help heal the body. Boy, it's quiet in here right now. Amen. If you don't believe that, why are you taking the pills? Amen. Now the deal is, is that, you know, we sometimes think that we know what the will of God is and then things don't go the way we thought they ought to go. And then it's easily at that point to create an offense in your own life toward God. And I know some people argue about that. How can you get offended at God? Well, you can. You get offended at God because he didn't let something happen or he did let something happen. You didn't understand it. You thought this is not fair and all this. But you have to remember that God's not up to the public opinion pose. God operates in sovereignty, and this is my will, and this is what I want to do, and my will will be executed. I don't want to find myself in rebellion against the will of God even in my own life. Sometimes the will of God comes to me, and I want to kind of fuss and kick about it, and I don't like it, and I, I want to tell God I, I don't like that. I don't think that's a good decision. I, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a good idea. I was pastoring in the state of Oklahoma for a while, and and uh, I had this crazy dream. And in the dream, God showed me a man standing on a mountain. I think God still speaks to people in dreams, if I remember correct. Now, if that's going to happen, you're going to have to learn to sleep more. All you people sleeping three or four hours and getting up going. That's why God can't talk to you very much. Amen. Need to give him ample time to be able to speak to you in a dream. And so the dream was about San Francisco and the call to San Francisco. And I'm just going to tell you, man, when I got that, I said, you got to be kidding me. You, you, you're joking to me. Why would I want to move my family into Sodom and Gomorrah? That's the way I proceeded. That's the way I thought about it. So I had a little uh, rebellion. I, I even become Satan maybe there for a while. See, I call myself Satan. So now, you know, we're all even there. Amen. And, and I spoke against it. I said, I, I, that, there's no way. I'm not going to do that. And then uh, I make a phone call to a, an old prophetess. She's dead and gone now. She's a very godly woman. And I said, I need to talk to you about something. She said, oh, you want to talk to me about San Francisco? Oh, great. I said, I do. She said, well, what is it about it? 
She said, God's been talking to you about going there, hasn't he? I said, he has. I said, but I got some concerns. I said, my number one concern is, is I have three children. I have two teenage daughters and a little boy. And I said, I'm very concerned about moving them into that arena, moving them into that culture. And she said, the Lord said, go, he'll take care of your kids. And he has. She said, what's the other one? I said, the other one is, you know how much money it costs to live in San Francisco? <laughs> and I mean, when that was happening, we were like number two in the nation on the cost of living. Manhattan, number one, we were number two. And we passed Manhattan quite a while back, amen. But the fact is, is that uh, she said, well, she didn't say anything. She just started laughing. And I said, what's funny? She said, you are. And I said, I am. She said, yeah, you're funny. She said, you're really funny. I said, well, how am I funny? She said, oh, you're just funny. And maybe you like people laugh at you. I don't, amen. So I said, well, why don't you tell me what I'm so funny about? She said, okay, I will. She said, when you said that a while ago, I seen God break out in a sweat. Because he can give you $3, but he can't give you $3 million. Is that correct? She said, I mean, he struggles at the larger amount. Isn't that correct? Oh, he can come up with $3, but he has a hard time coming up with 3 I'm still confessing that $3 million. I can tell you that right now. Amen. <laughs> but the deal is, is that she finally got the point across. My, my resistance was in the fact of that this is God's will. He's speaking to me, and I'm having trouble. Now, maybe you've never been there, but I think most of you probably have. When God's speaking something to you that you necessarily don't want to do, I personally believe that's where the scripture says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Meaning, as long as God's putting you down a path you like and you enjoy and you don't have a problem with it, you don't really learn obedience. You don't learn obedience to the king until he asks you to do something you don't want to do. Somebody said amen. amen. Now, I've set you up. Set you up. I, I want you to remember all that. I want you to remember all that. Now, here's the deal. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne. Where, where was he? Where was the throne? Where was the throne? Okay, I'm, all right, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's find out where his throne is. Everybody good? Now, here's the deal. I usually preach till I get hungry. And when that hits, I'm done. <laughs> Y'all can shout, talk in tongues, float in the air. I don't care. I, I want to go eat. And for good news to you is I didn't eat breakfast this morning. <laughs> so we're going to hurry into this right here. All right. Where, 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 anybody know where his throne is? It's in the temple. It's in the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, you see his throne. He sees that it's in the temple. So here's, here's what I want to prove to you today is that when you start talking about the throne of God, it's always in the temple. It's in the temple. It's not the only thing that you find consistent in the scripture. I mean, over in the book of Revelation, you've got the same thing. But you will find close to, you will find close to the throne of God, you will always find an altar. It's consistent all the way through the scripture. The throne of God and before the throne of God is an altar. Even in Revelation, it's over there. You see the throne of God and then underneath the altar is the, the, the saints and the prayer of the saints and all. So it's consistent all the way through it. And I don't have time to go through a Bible study to prove that. Just trust me, you can do that after church. But the deal is, it's consistent. There is an altar and there is a throne. So my deal is, is that you cannot get to the throne of God except by the altar. Mm. 
There's no way. There's no way. Now, I, I, I want to kind of just drop this in on you here a little bit. Now, see, we view the altar, and thank God for the altar. I know this is not literal altar, but symbolic. This is where people pray. But here's the thing that I want to establish. Just because you pray doesn't mean you have an altar. An altar is not a place of prayer. The altar is where something dies. And you can pray without an altar. Oh, boy. Yes, you can. You can pray out of your own will. You can pray out of your own mind. You can pray according to determined by your own counsel. You can pray those kinds of things. We call it praying amiss. But the fact is, is now you can't have an altar. If you have an altar in your life, there's going to be prayer. But it's not only going to be prayer. The altar is built for something to die. So something has to be placed on that altar. I was preaching for Brother Aaron Bounds a couple years ago. And there's tongues of interpretation that went out. And, and the interpretation was, is you've asked me where my fire is. And I'm telling you, my fire is reserved in the heavens. You ask me, when will, when will my fire come? My answer is, my fire seeks an altar. My fire only falls at the altar. Now, we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. I know the way that we preach that, but Jesus or John was actually saying that uh, this is God's way to consume the chaff. Our God is a consuming fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with Fire, meaning that the fire of God coming into your life. Now, this is the difference between true fire and false fire. The fire of God has to consume something. False fire has nothing to consume. It just falls. It's just a display. That's all there is to it. It's strange fire. But the fact is, is until that you build that altar and you put something on that altar, just like Elijah did, then the fire of God is not going to be in your life because it comes into your life to consume everything that's not like him. A lot of people want the Holy Ghost, but they don't want the Holy Ghost in fire. They want to talk in tongues. They want to magnify God. They want to say, I got glossolalia, and I learned a long time ago, the devil don't care if you talk in tongues until you get an accent. But he doesn't want the fire of God in your life, and he sure don't want you to get into the waters of baptism so you can receive the Holy Ghost and talk in tongues and talk in tongues and talk in tongues. But what you need is not just the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost in fire because God intended to put something in your life that would consume that which is unrighteous. That's what Peter said, that in the end, are you hearing me? That in the end... That fire is going to consume all unrighteousness. There'll be a new heavens and there'll be a new earth. I'm telling you, here's what I tell people. You can burn now or you can burn later, but you're going to burn. And I just, well, I didn't plan on getting on this. You know, I, I don't know what you mean. Well, let me help you with what I mean. Noah gets over here in an ark and water moves him. Water moves him from one point, old world to a new world, Right? The same water that destroys the world and the, the wicked saves Noah. It flips in the New Testament. It's not water, it's fire. And the same fire that's going to destroy this world is the fire that saves you. That's why you need the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. But you can't get Holy Ghost and fire until you build God an altar and you put yourself on that altar and you die out on that altar. Praise God. Anybody believe what I'm preaching right now? Anybody remember the night that you went to the altar? Ooh. I believe it's the will of God to set America on fire. I believe it's the will of God to set the world on fire. Ultimately, he will. But I also believe that God is calling the church. He's calling the church right now. He's calling us to the altar. Just hear me out. He's calling us to the altar. You follow the steps of Elijah. Elijah is dealing with the crippled nation. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. 
Elijah's dealing with the crippled nation. How long halt ye between two opinions? It's the same term you get crippled or handicapped, the halt, the lame, the blind. In other words, Israel had come to a point that they were buying into a multiplicity of gods. Well, let's keep Jehovah, but let's add Baal and some of these others and all. And so the prophet calls them to the mountain. And he says, how long is this nation going to be crippled? We need to determine who's going to be God. And the way that we're going to know is he's going to answer by fire. So that's going to be the determining. Everybody agree? They said, oh, yeah, we agree. That's a good deal. And so, you know, the false prophets, they took off all day long. I mean, it got so bad, they're cutting themselves and blood splattering everywhere, calling on their gods to send fire. Elijah's having a pretty good heyday with all that, in case you didn't know. Where is your God? I guess your God went on a vacation. I guess your God's deaf. I guess your God's blind. One translation says, I guess your God had to go to the bathroom. Where's he at? I mean, the more he did that, the more, I mean, they just got, and they just cut and bleeding. And, and finally, toward the evening sacrifice, Elijah said, I think y'all have had enough time. You've had all day. Don't get deceived by the false having all day. Because when it's the evening sacrifice, it doesn't take God long to get done what he needs to get done. I have a word for this church today. The first thing Elijah did is he said, okay, we're going to rebuild the altar. And you know how they rebuilt the altar? He took 12 stones. And the scripture says these 12 stones were the 12 tribes which are the 12 sons. So what he's doing is, is he's calling Israel back as a family. Before you were tribes, you were a family. You were. Build this altar. Come together as a family. I see the great revival of the end time starting in our homes. Starting in our families. I told the church a few months ago, I said, it's not right for you to put on us to train your kids one hour on Sunday. That's your responsibility in the home. We'll help assist you there, but don't put that on us. And the fire of God is not going to fall in the building or in the congregation until it starts falling in our homes. So if our homes are going to have a visitation of the Holy Ghost and fire, then that means we're going to have to start building some altars in our homes. We're going to have to come together as a family. Why do you think there's such division in families right now? Don't you? Oh, man, I didn't. I just, here we are. Don't you know when there's division in families, your prayers are hindered? Don't you know you can't fuss with each other all the time? Husband and wives, you can't fuss with each other all the time and then wonder why. I just don't know why God doesn't answer my prayer. I'm just not getting anywhere in my prayer. What the scripture tells you, if you've got let this little deal going on, you can't cuss at each other all the way to church. Let the kids see you scream and holler and throw pots and pans and then walk in the house of God like, no, 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 it's just hitting the ceiling and it's bouncing back down. And the same thing happens when you've got all in your heart against a brother. Leave your gift on the... Uh, that's not talking to Pentecostals. We're the tongue talkers. Boy, it's quiet in here right now. Have all in your heart and then you wonder why God's not answering your prayer. Sorry, Brother Carson, I didn't, I didn't mean to go off like this, but here we are. I can't stand them if you only knew what they did. Do you really want that person to have power over you to where you can't even get your prayers through? I, I, well, you just don't know what they said. Oh, come on. Give me. I, I, I don't. You know, what, what intrigues me most about Jesus is he calls Judas his friend and he calls Peter his enemy. My friend, my enemy. I think, well, I think that'd be the other way around. No. You see, Judas was helping him go to his destiny. Peter was trying to stop him. 
And I learned a long time ago that I alone cannot crucify myself. I went out one time. Now, just trust me, I'm not weird like that. But I went out one time in the, in the garage, got a hammer and nail, and I held the nail right there, and I took my hand, and I said, okay, I can. I, I didn't. I said, but I can nail that hand to the cross. You know, I could start mailing with my feet, I guess, and nail them to the cross. And then I go up here to this hand, but I got a problem. So I, I can't finish it. You come up here, buddy. Yeah, in the center. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Come on up here, <laughs> son. And so, you know, so here's what God says. He said, okay, so you can't finish it off. So I'm going to introduce into your life things that I call agents of crucifix. Uh-oh. They're not your enemy. They're your friend. They're going to make sure you're dead. Mm. So I want you to put a hammer and nail there, and I want you to finish it off. And I could say, you devil, I hate your guts. Everything you've said about me, everything you've done against me, every way you've lied on me, every way... You borrowed money from me and you never paid it back. I hate your guts. <laughs> and he's really not my enemy. He's my friend. And you're going to learn one of these days, thank you. You're going to learn one of these days that God brings people into your life. You think they're your, boy, I didn't see this coming here today. You think they're your enemy, but they're really not your enemy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're helping me get to my destiny. You're going to have to learn how to deal with that because if you don't, you're going to get bitterness. You're going to get a spirit of anger. You're going to think the church is full of hypocrites. Is this, am I identifying enough right here? You're going to think, oh, them, that, that guy, he's a loser. You just don't know what he did. Well, you know what? I don't want anybody hindering my prayer. I don't want anybody hindering my relationship with God. That's more important to me than what you think or anything else that you say. I want to make sure that I maintain that connection to him. Okay, all right, all right. I got to hurry because I felt the first little... Hunger pain right there, amen. <laughs> I'm not the only one in the building that feels that way. Now, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And I say, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may go prove what is that acceptable and perfect will of God. Isn't that what it says? Why living sacrifice? It's almost a contradiction. Something that you sacrifice is dead, but yet he calls it here a living sacrifice. Hmm. I asked Dr. Hughes one time, I said, what, what do you think that verse means? He said, well, it's simple. He said, if you put something in the Old Testament on the altar and you killed it, it stayed there. It didn't get off. He said, but with us, I can die today, but tomorrow I can crawl right off that altar. So he said, it's a daily thing that we're living. So I'm living this life, but watch it. I'm living this life, but the life that I'm living is in complete dedication and in service unto God. It is also found in my worship. I cannot truly worship unless I am a living sacrifice. Hmm. We got quiet there. Now, here, here's where I'm going. I've been looking at this altar deal, trying to figure it out. What, what, what's, what's the deal here? I'm going to make this statement here today, and some of you will disagree initially, but hopefully you'll hear it out. I say that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. I believe he died in the garden. I believe that Jesus Christ died 
went to the altar, not just to Calvary, but in the garden, he goes to the altar and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, I know a lot of people think that's the cup of sin. I personally believe it's the cup of suffering. I don't want to have to suffer like this. How can this be your will? I know what the prophets said. I know they said my visage would be marred. They'll beat me beyond recognition. I know the conversation that I had with Moses and Elijah on the mountain talking about the things that I would suffer here in Jerusalem. So if it's possible, I don't like the path that you're asking me to go down. So if it's possible, put me on a different path. But then he says that famous statement, but nonetheless, here's where he dies. But nonetheless, not my will but thy will be done. Hear me. The only way that you can get to the throne of God is through the altar. And the altar is where you die and your ideas die and your will dies and the king says, here's mine. And where the word of a king is, there's power. Mm. Don't rebel against what I'm asking you to do. Don't go down the path of questioning what I'm asking you to do. It is better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Oh, boy. I'm not worried about the devil. I'm not, listen, I'm not worried about the prince of Indianapolis. I, you know, some, what's his name? I don't know. It could be Bob or Pete or Sam or Sally. I don't know what it is, and I'm not too much worried about that. Those things don't frighten me. Devils really don't frighten me. I, I've been exposed to a lot of that kind of nonsense, but I'll tell you what does frighten me. You want to know what frightens me? It's carnality in the church, and it's self-will that rules in the church. And it's Simon Peter that rules in the church and becomes the enemies of the cross. When God starts speaking his will and his ways, and this is what I want to do, that you think you've got the right to speak against it and to say, I don't think that's necessary and I don't think that's the way it ought to go. And I don't agree with Pastor Carson. I don't agree with the direction and I don't agree with this and I don't agree with that. Better be careful lest you find yourself the enemy of God. And that next verse of Ecclesiastes says, don't go join their rebellion." Well, praise God. Don't go join their rebellion. It puts you as an enemy to the king. So here's my deal. The altar, the altar is where I drag my will down there and I say the only way that I can get to his word and to his will is my will has to die right here. Mm. I knew it wouldn't be a shouting message. But boy, we want Holy Ghost and we want all that other stuff, but we don't like the altar. I had a dream several years ago. I seen, it was in a church building, Brother Carson. I seen a bunch of young men in the front of it and they were dancing and rejoicing. And I stood there and I said, what are they rejoicing about? And one of the guys in the front turned and said, we took the altar out. We took the altar out. They were excited about taking the altar out. I'm telling you, when you take the altar out of your life, where you pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done, then the only alternative to that is you're going to live your life according to your own will, which makes you king. Yeah. I'm king of my own life. So this, this is what I got into this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died. See, kings live in palaces. Kings live in palaces. But your king lives in a temple. So my body either becomes a palace or it becomes a temple. I'm either the palace where I'm king or I'm his temple. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't defile it, because if you defile it, God will destroy you. This is, God, this is where God is supposed to rule and to reign. Your heart should be submitted. Your will should be submitted. Your ways should be submitted. People, Paul says, this holiness and worshiping God, it's your reasonable service. This is not unreasonable. But if, if you're not 
putting him on the throne. You know, people say, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you're saved. I got news for you. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is not some verbiage that you just say, but to really confess that he's Lord means I have taken myself off the throne in my life, and I refuse to live in a palace. I'm going to live in the temple. I want to be the temple of the Holy Ghost, and the only way I can be the temple is for him to sit on the throne of my heart. Woo. Let's clap here just a second. This really is our battle. It really is, it's our battle. Maybe it's mine, not yours, I don't know, but I think we're all living in the same flesh. Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be you transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might go prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And I say unto a man not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, for God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Isn't that right? A couple of verses later, he said, if you're going to prophesy, prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Okay, come back up here, son. All right? Now, here's how this works. Where are you from? Jesus, forgive him. Okay, here's how it works, okay? What's your name? Daniel. Daniel? That's a good Bible name. Daniel, you're going to be Daniel, and I'm going to be God. Okay? I kind of like that. And so here's how I set the measure of faith, okay? I know what everybody says. Well, when you receive Jesus, you've got to measure faith. Yeah, that's, 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 that's not what he's saying. What sets the measure of faith? You in Bible school? Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to know by the panic look in your eyes if you know it or not. And if you don't know it, I'm going to save you from being embarrassed, and I'm going to lean over, and I'm going to give you the answer. And you can say, the Spirit just told me. Okay? Where does faith come from? Well, well, I'm going to ask you again. Where does faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing of the word of God. Oh, so it comes from the king. It's the word of a king, right? So the king says, this is the perimeter. My word sets the boundaries of your faith. Yeah, it does. I hear people all the time say, I think if I just confess it that Jesus has got to do it. Where in the world did you come up with that? Boy, it got quiet in here right there. Amen. I got friends of mine that say, you know, if I can just think it, God, speak it, God will do it. it sounds like Lucifer a little bit to me. Just follow me. I can get us. Oh, never mind. Amen. <laughs> so he's going to set these perimeters so God speaks to you and says, now, Daniel... Here's what I want you to do, okay? Uh, which one of you want to come up here, the Father or the Holy Ghost? Come on. All right, Father, come up here. What's your name? Zachary. All right, Zachary, come over here. So I'm going to set the measure of your faith. I'm going to tell you my will, okay? Now, Zachary, wait a minute. Are you married? Are you married? Okay. I need one that's married. Do I have a young man here that's married? Do you want to claim that you're married? <laughs> Maybe you don't want people to know that you are married. I don't know. Where, where, where are we at over here? Okay. Zach, thank you. I, I, I need a married man. Okay. Is your wife in this service? Where, where's she at? Okay. Are you the one that gave the presentation here today? Or No. Okay. All right. Somebody different. Okay. What's your wife's name? Joanna. Joanna. And what's your name? Brandon, okay, you stand over here. Now, here's the deal. Here's how I set the measure of faith, all right? Ooh, the second hunger pain just hit, so we're moving along here. All right, here's the deal, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, Daniel, to go three steps and stop, okay? Obedience. There you go. Did you do three steps and stop? Okay, that's the measure of faith. You heard my word, and you obeyed it, okay? I'm fixing to help some of you to success. 
Okay, now what's your name? Brandon. Brandon. And your wife is? Johanna. Jo Johanna or Joanna? Johanna. Johanna, okay. You're going to go seven steps and... No, wait a minute. I got it backwards. You go three steps. <laughs> you go seven steps. Four more steps. There you go. All right. You do seven steps? Okay, now, here's the deal. You ready? So you're looking at him, and God says, this is what I'm going to speak to you. This is my will. There it is. As long as he does it, he's successful. See, success in the eyes of God is not numbers. Success in the eyes of God is obedience. If God tells me to go put my head in one of these corners and stay there till he comes, I'm just as obedient as the man that built 100,000 member congregation or anybody else because I am going to obey what the king told me to do. And if I do that, then I'm successful and I'm obedient. So it's wrong for me to measure and compare because I don't have the word that he has. I only have the word that I have. Mm, I want to try to help some folks here today. Now, see, here's the deal. He's not married. He got to go seven steps, but you're married. Johanna, I'm going to pick on you, all right? I don't think you do this. I think you're a very godly, praying woman, all right? But here's what happens. Okay, you're married. And so now, a man should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So for me to think beyond that boundary puts me in the position of God. Because the moment that I step past what he told me, I'm now operating as my own king. Okay, step back. But here's how this works. How long have you been married? Four months. How long? Four months. Four, oh, Four months. Maybe you're the right one that I need to talk to here today. I don't know. Okay. Now, you would never do this. Newlyweds, just, you know. Keep it, amen. <laughs> so Johanna says to you, well, that's not fair. He went seven steps and you only went four. What's wrong with you? Oh, boy. That's not right. You, you must lack initiative. Don't you want those other four? We know there's four more steps at least. Don't, don't, I'm telling you, don't, don't make my mama be right. She told me. And so Johanna, without even understanding what she's doing, she starts playing on this and she starts playing on his pride as a man that wants to prove to his wife that he's successful and he can do this stuff and all. And so now pride enters the picture and guess what? Now, now you're not operating as him the king. Now you have assumed the position of king and the moment that you step out, now you may disagree and if you do step, but the moment you step out, your king says, oh, since you're the king, protect yourself. Hmm. Oh, boy. Now that you're king, you supply your need. I take care of my subjects, not those that are in rebellion against me. All right. Thank you, Johanna. I know you'll never do that. I just gave you some of the best marriage counseling you'll ever get in all of your life right there. All right, let me tell you. Let me tell you a quick story, all right? Uh, I don't necessarily enjoy what I'm about to tell you. I have prayed at times that God would take it that I didn't necessarily enjoy doing it. But there's been times, Brother Carson, that God has used me in churches to see things in the church. And for God to reveal things in the church that are hindering the growth of that church, the health of that church. And it was in one of those revivals that that happened. And uh, 
there was a situation in the church to where one of the leaders was uh, molesting in the building even. And so I'm preaching along, and all of a sudden that just it kicks in, and I stop. I said, this is what I feel. This is what I think the Lord just showed me. And then he showed me who the man was. And so I'd had everybody worship. I, I, you know, I don't like embarrassing people. I really don't. I have before, and I've apologized to God and them. I, that's not what I want to do, anything. So I just said, let's all stand and worship. And so they went to worshiping. I slipped off the platform. I went down to the man, and I tapped him. You know, he was, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, you know, you're the man. And so he gets violently sick, takes off out of the building. His wife follows after him. She comes back in a little later, and nobody even knew what had happened. She comes back a little later and she said, uh, my, uh, uh, well, this is specific. My, uh, my husband said to tell you that he's got the flu. Mm. Yeah, he's got the flu. He just flew right out the door. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I said, that's not the case. I said, your husband's unclean. And, you know, so, well, I told the pastor after church, this is what happened. And he starts sobbing and weeping. Uh, his family had been taken advantage of. Didn't know what to do. Didn't kind of know how to deal with it. And so I said, okay, here's the deal. I said, if, if that man doesn't come forth within 30 days, I'll come back to this church and I'll help you deal with it. And he said, okay. So I get about two weeks into the 30 days. And I had this crazy dream. And in the dream, there's a man standing there. He's kind of a muscular man. There's another man standing next to him. And uh, I knew that the, what appeared to be physically weaker could take this guy. And so, so I kept telling this guy over here, I said, take him. You can, you can take him. Take him. Now, I know. I don't know how y'all talk around here, but that means just whip the daylights out of him. It's an old Southeast Missouri term, amen. Just, just, you can take him, take him. And I told him that two or three times and he wouldn't do it. So I said, okay, if you want to hit him, I will. So I drew back and I hit him two times as hard as I could hit that man. It didn't even phase him. And God had shown me that two times in that church, I had been used in this area and I'd hit that spirit two times. And so... Well, when I hit him twice, he drew back to hit me. And when he hit me, the scene changes in the dream. I'm in, a, I'm in an auditorium. There's a, there's a platform. There's a stage up there. And there's, a, there's people standing around. And Brother Carson, there's a body up there covered with a sheet, a dead body. So I walk up there, and they automatically say, no, go away. You don't want to see this. So I, I get down there, and I pull the sheet off that body, and it's my wife laying there. And... So I, I, I got her in my arms, and I look, and this is weird. I know. I know some of you are going to leave saying, I ain't going back tonight. That's weird stuff. Amen. But she had a funnel right here in her head, a funnel stuck right here. And I looked. I said, what, what happened? How did this happen? And one of the men standing there said, because you got in a fight God didn't tell you to get into, and you left her unprotected, and the enemy will destroy her through her mind. So I get up out of bed. It's about 2.30, 3 o'clock. I put on some old sweatpants and tennis shoes, which I really enjoy wearing. Amen. And I took off down to the church and I got on the floor and I begged God for about two or three hours. Please tell me what I'm getting into. This is when God taught me this. He said, you went beyond what I told you to say. If you go back and you deal with that, you will destroy your wife. What did I tell you to do? This. Where did you take it further? Well, when I said I'd come back, he said, I didn't tell you to go back. I told you this, you obeyed me, and then you went a little further. Because I went beyond his word where there's power in my obedience to my word. And I was about to get myself in trouble. I called the man, told him I wouldn't be able to make it back. It caused a little rift between he and I for a while. We patched it up. 
But he, you know, at first I didn't understand why you didn't come. And I said, I can't. There, you, there's, there's no amount of money. There's no amount of prestige that you could ever offer me to get me to come back. I don't want to go beyond my boundaries. Now, I found that when I went that morning to the altar of the Lord. And I got there and was crying out to God and I was dying out. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I was actually doing it in the spirit of help. God said, no, you went beyond. I think what the Spirit's saying to the North American church is, and just take it for how I mean it, I'm tired of you kind of doing things your way. I'll close with this. Man come to me here a while back. Man, a few years ago, and he said, Brother Morgan, I was in a time of consecration. We good? Everybody still good? I was in a time of consecration and seven-day fast, and he said about the third, fourth day, I don't remember which one he told me, he said, I had this unusual visitation from God. And I said, okay. He said, I seen a wheat field, a massive wheat field. You couldn't see the end of it. And he said, it, just, it was just massive. And he said, I seen a man out there, and uh, he was on a riding lawnmower. And he was mowing out through that wheat field. So, you know, a little path. I said, in this visitation, he said, there was a man that appeared, was standing close to me, and he said, you, you see the field? He said, I do. He said, you see that man on the mower? He said, I do. He said, that's you. And he said, that's how much harvest you're getting from this field. But if you will come with me, I will show you God's intent for the end time. He said, Brother Morgan, he said, uh, Indiana's kind of agriculture, isn't it? Farm. Okay, so you'll understand. Some places I use this terminology, they're like, what in the world is he talking about? He said, Brother Morgan, he took me over to this barn. He said, it, 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 was just an, it was just massive. And he said, we stepped inside, and he said there was a combine. How many of you know what a combine is? Okay. There was a combine in there. He said, I can't tell you. I can't tell you the size of it. It, just, it was just very. And he said, uh, this man was still there, and he said, climb up in the driver's seat. So he said, I climbed up and I got in the driver's seat. He said, I'm there. And then so this man's still close to him. And he says, what do you notice? He said, well, I notice that there's no steering wheel. And this man, angel, whatever you want to call him, says, this cannot be driven and led by the will of man. You see, a combine is where we bring several blades together several width across the front. So instead of us just mowing a little piece and our own autonomy and our own individuality, this means that I've got to die out and submit myself to another brother to where we combine together to create a combine. And then when we hit the field, we won't hit the field, just little mowers out there, but we will hit the field with a massive harvesting instrument. It cannot be led by the will of man. We're going to struggle. I feel something on me now. We're going to struggle, if we're not careful, that we think we have our idea how this harvest ought to come, and this is the way that we think God ought to do it, and this is what I think ought to happen, but the only way we're ever going to see the harvest that God wants us to see is when we all come as the family of God to the altar. And we forget, now I say this here, we forget that we're this church and they're that church. And we're, and before we were, can I say it, just local assemblies, sections, districts, organization, before we were all of that, Brother Carson, we were a family. And God is calling us, God is calling us, and he's calling this church right now. Don't let anything get between you and somebody else, because I need you to come to my altar, and don't exert your will over the will of another. One more thing, and I will stop. 
world wars are started over one nation exerting its will over another nation. Church wars and organizational wars are started when one person, one party, decides to exert its will over another. That's how it happens. The best thing that can happen to all of us is to bring our will down to the altar and put it on the altar and ask God to consume it and to renew my mind that I will know what his will is. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, even as it is in heaven. This is all about his will and all that. So you know what? I think that God is calling in Annapolis, Calvary Tabernacle, to his altar. To his altar. Mm. And he's telling us, I want your will to die. My fire is waiting for you to build me an altar. And if you'll build me an altar and you will put yourself on that altar... I will burn out of you, out of this church, out of whatever. I'll burn out of you the things that are not like me. And I will renew your minds to where you will know what my will is. And once you know that, I have now set the perimeters and the boundaries. Go do it. Go prove what is the will of God. I feel a witness of the Holy Ghost right now.